This morning, we love children, and Jesus loves children, so we're going to pray for you right now, okay? Let's fold our hands and bow our heads and close our eyes. Dear Jesus, thank you that you love children. Thank you that you've given us a church and people to teach us about you and about the Bible. And we pray that you would do just that this morning, that we'd learn more about you and get to be with our friends. Thank you again. Amen. Amen. Okay. It is uh, my privilege this morning to introduce Bryn McPhail. And uh, here's the only thing you really need to know about Bryn. Scottish heritage, Canadian citizenship, ordained in an American Presbyterian church, ministering in the Bahamas. I am convinced he has 19 passports and he's really a secret agent. Bryn is like the Jason Bourne of Presbyterians. So with that said, We don't have these fancy microphones in the Bahamas, so if you just give me a minute here, I'll get used to this high-tech setup that you have. I'll get it. There we go. It is a delight to be here. And all those introductory remarks notwithstanding, I was thinking it through. Uh, it wasn't more than a few weeks ago when I celebrated, and I don't know if this is a, a, an unusual thing to celebrate, but I celebrate the anniversary of my ordination. And I was ordained as a pastor, first in the Presbyterian Church in Canada on January the 18th, 1998. And I was reflecting on all that God has led me through over the last 17 years of ministry. And then I was thinking about this trip to Potomac Hills Presbyterian Church in Leesburg, Virginia. And it dawned on me, in 17 years of pastoral ministry, so I've preached probably in over a hundred places, probably over a thousand sermons. I've never preached in the United States. So this is a special opportunity. So I want to thank you for the invitation to be here. And I just hope I can preach half as well in America as I can in Canada and the Bahamas. It was great to be with the men at the retreat over the weekend, even if they did play some ridiculous games that kept me up at night. I, 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 you know who you are, and I have forgiven you. And, and so we can proceed with this morning's message as scheduled. Because I was invited here under the guise of being one of your mission partners, you've, Potomac Hills, as you likely know, sent a team to Nassau, Bahamas, uh, to work in our community to, and to share in the mission uh, that we're a part of week by week. Uh, I thought I would come with a message that has some relationship to mission, uh, but I hope you will see a wider application for the text that I want to bring to your attention this morning. 
And so first, I uh, understand I think most of you have ESV, and I commend you for that. Uh, I've just had trouble letting go of my NIV. So I'm going to read Isaiah 6, uh, the first eight verses from the New International Version, 1984 uh, version of that. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces. With two they covered their feet. And with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe is me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And I said, Here I am, send me. Let us bow in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we have not gathered here today to hear the ruminations of a man's mind. We have come not to hear opinions, but we have come to hear Your Word proclaimed. So I pray, Lord, that as I preach, Your Spirit would be at work in me, that your spirit would go forth from your word, and that indeed your word as it goes forth would not return empty, but would accomplish in our hearts all that you have purposed for it, for this day and for all, all our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. I don't like to just pluck a little passage out of Scripture and squeeze it into something that I want to convey to a group of people. So I, if I could give you just the quickest of summaries of the first five chapters of the book of Isaiah, the summary would go something like this. Israel was a mess. Read the first five chapters of Isaiah and you get a sense of just how disobedient Israel was just how unfaithful they were to the covenant that Yahweh had made with them. And you get the sense as you read the first five chapters of Isaiah that the Lord would, would be prudent, He would be wise, He would be within His rights if He tore up the covenant and walked away from Israel forever, making the covenant null and void. But instead of cutting Israel off, 
instead of rejecting them because of their chronic disobedience and unfaithfulness. What happens instead, we see in Isaiah 6, God shows up. God makes an appearance in order to roll out a plan for restoration. A plan that begins with the restoration of his prophet, Isaiah. Now, my interest in this passage has to do with the fact that God's pattern for dealing with Isaiah matches very closely God's pattern for dealing with you and with me. So as we walk through how God initiated this restorative plan with Isaiah, which resulted in a commissioning, as we watch how God dealt with Isaiah, it's not a stretch to say that he would deal with us in a similar manner. So what do we have? First, we have this. The appearance of God Almighty to deal with the sin of the people. The appearance of God Almighty to deal with the sin of the people. And here it is again. I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of His robe filled the temple. Isaiah goes on to describe the accompanying seraphs, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is filled with His glory. Now, it hardly needs to be said that what Isaiah saw that day was extraordinary. It was remarkable. Now, the vision of Isaiah is not something I expect you and I to experience. I have never seen the Lord, high and exalted, sitting on the throne. I have not seen a church building fill with smoke from His glory. I have not seen what Isaiah saw. And you might never see that either. But what we can expect, what each of us can expect, is for the Lord to appear to us in another manner. And I suspect that many of you have experienced an appearance of the Lord in your life. Perhaps even several times. It might have happened in a time of prayer. In a time in your life where things were difficult, or they were challenging, or you were full of grief, and you, you came in private before the Lord, and you had a clear and acute sense that He was with you. And He appeared to you in a manner, and spoke into your heart, into your mind. Or maybe it was while you were reading the Scriptures, or maybe it was even in this place as you, as you heard a sermon preached, you sensed that it was not a man standing before you, but the Word of God was going forth as you listened. You've probably experienced the Lord. He's made an appearance to you because it remains God's pattern to appear to individuals in order to turn us away from sin and to draw us to Himself. God appears to us in order to turn us away from sin. That's the first prong. The second prong 
As you might expect, as you track with Isaiah in this text, the second prong is the humble response of Isaiah to the Lord's appearing. The humble response of Isaiah to the Lord's appearing. And as you can clearly see, it's not a small thing for Isaiah that God appeared to him. We don't hear Isaiah say something like this, Oh, look at this! The Lord's arrived! Isn't this terrific? I'm so glad you're here. You probably know what a mess we're in. Israel could really use a boost from you. This couldn't be better time. Thank you, Lord, for showing up. No. How does Isaiah respond? Woe is me. I'm ruined. I'm undone because I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips and I've just seen the King. The Lord, the Almighty, has appeared to me and I'm in big trouble. Isaiah is utterly terrified by this appearance of the Lord. And as Isaiah demonstrates for us, if God appears to us, we're going to be overwhelmed. It's not going to be a little thing if we're sitting here on a Sunday morning or if we're reading our Bible or if we're praying at home. It's not going to be a little thing because when God appears to us in His glory, our natural response will be to respond with awe. We may even be terrified. And we'll have an acute sense of our unworthiness to be standing in the presence of the King. But I love what happens next. It's so gracious what happens next. God initiates, this is the third prong, God initiates healing and forgiveness for Isaiah. He thinks he's undone. He thinks this is the end. He thinks this is an end-of-the-world event for him because he's a man of unclean lips. But instead, God initiates healing and forgiveness for Isaiah. And this, this is not God diminishing the seriousness of Isaiah's predicament. It's not as if God comes along and says, Isaiah, calm down. You're being way too hard on yourself here. I haven't come to hurt you at all. Isaiah, you're not nearly as bad as you think you are. Israel's not nearly as bad as they think they are or you think they are. God doesn't say that. God does not diminish the seriousness of their predicament. He does not try to temper Isaiah's view of sin. No, instead of downplaying Isaiah's predicament, God remedies Isaiah's predicament. This is important because I suspect in many pulpits in the Western world, there is a temptation to want to say that our predicament is not dire, things aren't that bad, we're not as unfaithful as we could be, But God does not downplay the seriousness of Isaiah's predicament. Instead, he remedies Isaiah's predicament. We read in verse 6, One of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. 
Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Friends, this is the pattern of how God deals with each of us. First, God appears to us. Second, God's appearing to us heightens our awareness of sin and unworthiness in His presence. But third, God initiates healing and He applies forgiveness through the death of His Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. And we're healed. Jesus is the live coal in this story. Jesus initiates the healing and removes our guilt. And fourthly, the fourth prong is God's call upon our life. God's call upon our life. Once the guilt is removed, the Lord asks a question. He asks two questions. Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I don't want you to imagine that those questions are just meant for Isaiah. I believe that those questions are meant for you and for me. The God who powerfully appeared to you, the God who graciously forgave you in Christ, is the same God who calls you to go in His name. And I love Isaiah's response. It's, it's almost like the way a child responds in school. Here I am. Send me. Send me. I'll go. Do you see the difference forgiveness makes here? Do you see the difference grace makes? I mean, it wasn't more than a few moments earlier when Isaiah was cowering in fear. I'm undone. I'm ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips. I'm not worthy. I live among a people of unclean lips. They're not worthy. But now having experienced healing, now having experienced forgiveness, everything changed, and now Isaiah's hands up. Here I am. I'm ready. Send me. I'll go. You know the question was coming, didn't you? What about you? Who will go? Who will stand up? Well, it depends, I guess. Has God appeared to you? Has God manifested His glory to you? And when He did, did you have a sense of your sin? A sense of your unworthiness before Him? But God didn't let you linger in that state very long. He applied the gospel to you. The Lord Jesus Christ redeemed you. You experience the removal of your guilt and your sin. As far as the east is from the west, so far the Lord's sin is removed. If this has been your experience, then we need to come to that last part of the journey. If God has removed your guilt, if God has made you clean, if God has filled you with His Spirit, will you go in His name? There was a call issued to Isaiah that he accepted. 
eagerly. And it's a call that I pray that you will also accept. But let's be honest. I've been a pastor long enough to know that not everyone accepts the call. I wish I could tell you this morning, I pastor in a congregation where everyone is hands up every Sunday. Let's go. What do you need me to do? Here I am, send me. The reality is we all belong to congregations where we have people going at different speeds. We have some people who are not yet ready to go. We are in contexts where some people refuse to go or they're too frightened to go. And yet it appears to me that we all need to say yes. I'm not suggesting that we all need to serve in the same manner. If I was to be up there with the musicians, it would empty a church in a matter of weeks. <laughs> We're not all called in the same manner or in the same way. Nor do we even have to serve to the same degree. You know, I, I look at some of my friends. I only have one daughter, a 12-year-old girl. I look at some of my friends with four and five kids, and I'm thinking, oh, just, just, just show up on Sunday and you're doing okay because you've got a lot of stuff going on. Our life circumstances are such that some of us at some stages in our life can do more than others can at, at different stages. I'm not suggesting we need to do the same thing. I'm not suggesting we even need to say yes to the same degree. But I am suggesting this. Every Christian needs to be meaningfully engaged in Christ's service. Every Christian needs to be meaningfully engaged in the mission of Jesus Christ to this world. And there will be seasons where you can do a lot, and there will be seasons where you can do less. But at every point and at every stage, you should be able to say, yes, here I am. Lord, you know what I've got going on. You know all my responsibilities and my burdens, so be gentle with me. When you put your yoke on me, you're going to need to do most of the lifting and most of the directing. But we all need to stand up and say, here I am. Send me. You know my limitations. You know my weaknesses. But I want to do the work. I'm willing to go and to be used. I'm willing to set aside my plans and set aside my agenda and make your agenda to rule my life, Lord. So why doesn't everyone say yes? How do we account for the fact that some don't say, here I am, send me. I think one of the reasons that we don't answer the call is we realize how difficult the call can be. We appreciate that putting up our hand and saying, yes, use me, send me, put me to work, can mean great responsibility. And it's not that we have an aversion to work, but I realize, as I look out here, I don't know you, but I suspect some of you carry huge burdens in your workplace, huge burdens in your home. I look at the children and the young people here, and you're struggling to get all your homework done. And you've got sports teams to play for. We have packed schedules. We have saturated challenge, uh, calendars. And it's not easy to figure out, if we say yes, how do we fit it in? I just think it's a matter of being appropriately motivated. Understanding the importance of the mission 
and the reward of participating in it. And I want us to turn our attention, if, if you can flip quickly, go ahead, but you don't need to, I'll read it. 1 Corinthians 9. The Apostle Paul makes an analogy that I find to be very helpful. It's an analogy between answering the call and running a race. And the reason I appreciate this analogy is because the analogy suggests that answering the call requires effort. It requires work. It requires dedication. And for a long period of time, perhaps. 1 Corinthians 9, verse 24, Paul says this, Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last. But we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like a man running aimlessly. In other words, answering the call of Christ to go requires immense effort and serious focus. It requires strict training of a person's soul and walk with Christ to answer the call to go. But Paul says it's worth all the effort. The prize, the reward, the trophy makes it worth all the effort. It's worth, more the, it's worth the effort more than anything we've ever invested in. We go to work on Monday morning because we get a paycheck, and with that paycheck we can pay bills and pay down our mortgage and look after our family and eat good food. We work for rewards in this life. And Paul says, when you work in the mission of our Lord Jesus Christ, you're also going to get a reward. But this reward's going to last forever. And he, in this analogy, he gives two types of runners. And, and I think to myself, yeah, I'm, I'm aware that there are at least two types of runners. Paul talks about those who run with great purpose and those whose run looks aimless. Now, I don't know how much you know about the Bahamas. I'm going to just do a little bit of bragging here for a minute. Now, I realize in the Summer Olympics, it's the U.S. that dominates. I get that. Canada's not even really on the map in the Summer Olympics. But the Bahamas, a much smaller country, not simply much smaller than the U.S., but much smaller than Canada, the Bahamas, for a very small country, produces a lot of elite runners. And I think it was the 4 by 100 or was it the 4 by 400 I better get this right. You're not recording this, are you? You won't send this back to, to NASA. The Bahamas actually beat the U.S. and got a gold medal in the last Olympics, one of the relays. You'll have to look it up and tell me which one it was. But what I'm saying is, I have some exposure to some of the most elite runners on the planet. And I watch these men and women train, and they are fierce competitors. They are, I know what it's like to watch them with their strict training and, and the agony that they put their bodies through in order to be elite runners on this earth. 
By contrast, I also know what an aimless runner looks like. And I don't want you to do a mental picture of this because it'll be upsetting, but I think of myself on a treadmill for 20 minutes. I think of myself on a treadmill for 20 minutes, and that is the picture in my mind of an aimless runner. You know, just huffing and puffing, and I'm thinking, it's only at six minutes, come on, I... I know what it's like to see someone run with purpose, and I know what it's like to run aimlessly. As you think about saying yes to Jesus Christ, and I'm not talking about walking with Him as a Christian, as you think about saying yes to Him, here I am, send me, put me in the mission field. And the mission field might not be in the Bahamas. It might not be in an international location. The mission field might be somewhere in this building on a Sunday morning. But as you think about saying yes, I want you to think about running and training with great purpose. And I want you to think about the reward. Because I hear Paul telling us that the cost of saying yes is great. The cost of saying, here I am, send me, is great. But the reward is greater. The reward makes it all worthwhile. The crown we receive for answering the call of Christ, the crown we receive for going in his name, is said to last forever. The work, the cost, it will be worth it. Paul insists. Now I'd like to close this off. I've went from no microphone to a lot of microphones, it feels like. Now I'm messing things up. I'd like to close with a personal illustration. And it's one of helpful if we could ever get the microphones to work. <laughs> did, did, does, does your sound system have an aversion to Canadians? Mostly hockey fans. Well, at least I've got one Capitals jersey in the crowd today. Two Capitals jerseys. Great. I want to close with a personal illustration, and I'll, and I'll shout if I have to. I've, I've got a loud voice. Our church is right downtown, and for those who are a part of the mission team, I don't know if you've got a sense for how bad traffic can get. It, it's, we're a small island, 22 by 6 miles, and it can take you forever to get from one end of the island to the other. Our church is right downtown. And one day I was leaving the church, and right alongside our church property is, is a road that goes, it's really a steep, very steep hill. And as I pulled out of the parking lot on this particular day, traffic was just jammed up like I've never seen it before. And it turns out they had closed all the roads going southbound downtown that afternoon. And so every car in downtown Nassau that wanted to go south had to go up this one-way, very narrow, steep hill. And it was walled in on either side. The mission team, if you can picture how the roads next to the church had these giant walls, so there's no wiggle room. There's nowhere to go, and traffic was jammed right up that day. 
and we were barely moving. We were just kind of edging up this hill. And, and then I hope nobody was in a hurry that day because the truck immediately in front of me stalled out. And the mission team will remember half the cars looked like they shouldn't have been on the road. And I had one of those trucks in front of me. It just couldn't go anymore. It had run its course. It had kept the faith and fought the fight. And it, it was done. And, and this truck broke down right in front of me. And it was the worst thing. It was our only road south. We had nowhere to go around this truck because of the big stone walls. We were stuck. No one really had an appreciation for why we were stuck, so they started honking their horns. And then something good happened. Out of the truck came three really big men. And I thought, oh, this is good. These guys will just, they'll push it up the hill. These are really big guys. And so I sat there immediately behind. I was in my dress clothes, so I wasn't really inclined to help out. So I watched the three men and they could barely move the truck. In, in fact, they struggled so much that it's, at one point the truck came backwards a bit and I was worried I was going to get hit. And real, I eventually did the math and I realized that if I don't get out and at least try, there's no way these th three guys have the ability to get the truck up the hill. So I get out of the vehicle and I, I wish you could uh, visualize with me what it was because it was like three really big guys and I'm maybe five nine with my shoes on and so they would have looked at me as I was looking at them and I was sizing up them and they were sizing up me and they probably thought this guy's not going to be much help but I said can I help you and they said yeah sure you know give a push with us and so I leaned into it with these three men who couldn't push the truck up the hill and started moving forward and we started to get some momentum up this really steep hill. And we pushed this truck all the way up the hill. And I wish I could put a photo up of the looks on their faces when this, this little white guy rolled out of his car and was able to help them uh, push it up the hill. So what did these guys need? They didn't need the strongest person because I'm not the strongest person. They didn't need a big person because I was much smaller than all of them. What they needed was one more person. That's what struck me that day, is they had this impossible task that they were sincerely working at. They were exerting themselves in, in, a, in a very sincere manner, and they were failing and failing and failing. And all they needed was one more person. Now I start to think about all the various tasks that emerge in a local congregation. I think about the children's ministry, and I think of all the people it takes to nurture and to teach our children well. I think of the youth ministry that goes on, and you have a youth pastor, and you have volunteer youth leaders, and I think about the men's ministry and all that went into the retreat this weekend. And then I imagine there's also a corresponding women's ministry, which also has a lot of volunteers. Then I think about the music ministry and the, and the level of coordination that's involved there. And I think of your mission and outreach and all that's required to get to the Bahamas and to get to places in need and to help in the community. I suspect there are many hardworking volunteers in this congregation who in spite of their sincere efforts are wishing for better results. 
I don't know your congregation well. This isn't something that comes out of a conversation with any of your pastors. But if you're like most churches, you've got volunteers pushing very, very hard. And they're not getting the distance they had hoped for. Could it be? Could it be? And I don't know this. Could it be that there are ministry areas in this church if you had one more person, you could push that ministry vehicle to its desired destination? I wonder if one Sunday school teacher is thinking, if I just had one more helper, one more person in the rotation, I, I wonder how many areas of ministry in this church would be helped immensely, not by the strongest person, not by the, the most adept person, not by the smartest, but one more person. Someone who steps forward and says, here I am all my weaknesses and all my flaws, if I can be of service to you, here I am. Send me. And I'm simply here this morning to remind you that the Lord has called you. The Lord has called you to serve His mission. Hard work and dedication will be required. But I want to encourage you with the words of Paul who says, for your efforts you will be given a crown that will last forever. So dear friends, I want to challenge you, if I can, as an outsider, as a visitor, can I challenge you to find sufficient time, sufficient energy, and a resolute will to say to someone in this church leadership, here I am. Send me. Use me however you see fit. And may God help us as we serve. And what do I want to assure you of is this. Pushing the ministry truck up the hill is not easy. I remember how good it felt when we got that actual truck to the top of the hill. But the good feeling wore off a little bit later. The good feeling, the good reward, the divine reward for serving in Christ's kingdom is permanent. Your reward for serving in the Lord Jesus Christ's kingdom is permanent. It will satisfy you in this life and it will satisfy you in the next life. So don't spend too much time thinking it through. Find an elder, find a pastor, say, here I am, send me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it's not always easy to say yes, because so often it means saying no to something else. And we are, many of us, people pleasers by nature. Oh Lord, conform us in such a way that we desire to please you above all else, that your will would triumph in our life, that your kingdom would be where our focus would go. Oh Lord, for the leaders of this church who are pushing ministry vehicles up steep hills, give them backup resources. Give them a new wave of individuals who have said yes to you. And Lord, we trust you 
to lead this congregation to a period of growth, not simply numeric, but a new period of growth in their growth to maturity and in greater likeness to your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.